The following is a special sponsored edition of the Big Four Bio Podcast. Daniel Levine, and this is the Big Four Bio Podcast. Drug developers face great pressures to complete clinical trials on time and on budget. Challenges like patient recruitment, patient retention, and site selection can cause unexpected delays with significant economic consequences. This is particularly true in the area of rare disease drug development, where patient populations are small and geographically dispersed. Arthur D. Little works with clinical trial sponsors to leverage technology and avoid these pitfalls. We spoke to Ben Anejo and Ben Vanderschaff both partners in the life sciences practice of Arthur D. Little, about the challenges of rare disease drug development, how concerns about equity and diversity are adding to those challenges, and how the firm leverages technology to help its clients overcome the hurdles they face. Ben and Ben, thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting us. It's a pleasure. We're going to talk about the opportunities to accelerate the development of therapies, particularly for rare diseases, through the use of innovative approaches and the use of technology. Perhaps we can begin with the landscape. How big a problem is it for drug developers to enroll and execute a clinical trial on time and on budget, particularly for rare disease therapies? Thanks, Danielle. I think the issue of getting the drugs approved on time, submitted on time, approved on time, has been an age-old problem for the industry. It's been, as far as I can remember, been a, a, a challenge for most companies to complete their trials on time and on budget. In fact, the vast majority of clinical trials, as we know, the bigger phase three trials, more than 80% of them are late, right? Um, I think a very few percentage actually make it through on time and on budget. It's an issue that has plagued the industry for a long time due to all the challenges we have and complexities we have these days with clinical trials. And, and to be honest, the treatment options patients have, which um, reduces the interest in participating in new clinical trials. I think these are major problems for the industry. I think in the rare disease space, although we don't have as much data as the non-rare disease side of things, I think this remains an even bigger challenge. We do work with the number of rare disease clinical trial, um, rare disease clinical trial sponsors, and you see their concerns, which is a lot more um, than the common diseases when it comes to on-time and on-budget um, completion of their trials. This is a major challenge because of the uniqueness of rare diseases, but um, this is a massive problem for the industry, Daniel. Well, what causes delays for these companies? What makes rare diseases particularly a challenging area for clinical development? There's a lot of things that can cause delays, right? It's it's the, the age-old question, and it's, it's a question that most companies answer and, and come across. And there isn't one single answer. For one, 
there's trial design. Uh, and quite often we come across trials that are in operation, they've been started. There are multiple factors. It could be in the protocol and within the protocol, it could just be the, the trial design. It could be the endpoint or the, the secondary endpoints. It could be the number of visits that patients need to make. So that's, that's just in, in the protocol and the design. And we could have a whole different podcast just on that. Then there is competition. Where do you find your patients and who else is, is looking for those same patients? It's a, it's a, it's a big challenge. And even in the rare disease space, that challenge is getting bigger. And then there's operating challenges. Those, those trials are big, complex projects with lots of moving parts. There's multiple parties involved. And then we talk about CRO. We talk about the pharma company. We talk about. If we're talking big pharma, there's multiple departments with overlaps and silos, etc. Um, and then there's the sites, the investigators, there's the regulator. All those elements can contribute to the timing and to causing delays. And if you're talking rare diseases, clearly the number of patients is limited uh, relative to some others. So you have to be very precise of where do you find those patients and, and what do you have to offer them that makes your trial uh, attractive, interesting to them relative to other trials, relative to a standard of care, would that already exist? Yeah, I was going to add to what Ben just said. I think when it comes to the rare disease therapy area, we know misdiagnosis is very, very um, common, right? Um, of the of the um, rare disease trials that uh, that. Uh, sorry, let me take that again. <laughs> I hope you edit this with that. Okay, I think let me add on to that. When it comes to the rare disease side of things, misdiagnosis is very very high, which means it's a lot more difficult to find those patients with the right condition at the right time to participate in a clinical trial. So while it's difficult for every reason Ben has just said, rare disease side comes with the with the other challenges that these patients do not get diagnosed on time. And as we all know, red uh, patient recruitment is the biggest challenge that causes delay in clinical trials. And so added on top of that is the difficulty getting diagnosed before you qualify for a clinical trial. That's what even makes it challenging in the rare disease therapy area. Rare diseases by definition affect small patient populations. Patients are often geographically dispersed and may have difficulty traveling. How does this complicate enrollment challenges and site selection for clinical trials? It has a big impact. Uh, and it's, it's, it's important to understand how and where and why. Uh, for one, the critical point here is that the, the sponsor or whoever they outsource the trial to, if they don't do it in-house, need to really understand where the patients are, which is not always easy. Uh, so you have to work with patient organizations. Uh, you have to understand which investigators are really the people, the, the doctors in this space who know the patients, who have the patients, and who can recommend your trial, uh, who are the influencers. And not all influencers are investigators, right? The impact of social media on finding patients has gotten bigger and bigger. And 
it may be somebody who is either has a lot of experience with the, with the disease, either because they suffer of it themselves, or they've just been very active for family members. And understanding that is, is one big thing. And then the second one is you need to set up your trial in a way that makes life as easy as possible for, for those patients. As in limit the travel, if traveling would be a potential issue because of the disease. Uh, and you need to assume that the number of patients you recruit per site is a lot smaller than what you might see in other types of clinical trials. So cost per patient can be very high and you still need to open a substantial number of trials. But finding the patients, understanding where they are is a key part to the enrollment here. Complicating the challenges of enrolling patients is a new industry focus on equity in clinical trials. In the case of rare diseases, this can have significant importance because most of these diseases are genetic and can be more prevalent in different populations. How have drug developers' attitudes changed in accelerating their trials, giving this increasing focus on diversity and equity in recent years? And how seriously do they view this issue today? That's a great question, and thank you for that. I think there are two questions there. How has the attitude changed, and how are they taken seriously today? If I'm to go back to the first one, I would say the attitudes are changing in the positive direction. Looking back at my time in industry over the last 20 years, I would say when this was diversity and equity was talked about in the clinical trial space and in the rare disease space, it felt and it came across as something else that needs to be done. This is yet another requirement which increases my cost, which makes trials much more difficult to recruit patients. It's yet nothing I have to do. I think that was the attitude um, I saw um, maybe 20 years ago. I would say in the last 10 years in my experience, I've seen a, posi um, a, a very positive shift towards trial equity, rare disease equity, health equity, which is actually beneficial to multiple parties, to the pharmaceutical sponsors, to the patient groups. Um, it comes with benefits to everybody. In fact, in my opinion, done properly, clinical trials recruit faster if they have a major focus on health equity, um, on tr trial equity. I think they're taking it very seriously in answer to your second question today because the regulation is now pushing us more and more um, um, to have the patient population in the clinical trial represent uh, the population the drug is going to be approved for in the future. And so a lot of companies 20 years ago perhaps saw it as a nice to have. What we see today is it's a must have and we see more and more companies begin to invest and take this seriously. I think the other thing is the patient. The patient's voice is getting stronger and stronger in the rare disease space alike. People expect to see diversity. That's what today's generation expects to see outside of the regulation. The drug developers um, themselves, their employees expect diversity. So this is a topic that is now really at the heart of clinical trial development. It's not a nice to have anymore. And in my opinion, companies have now begin to take this a lot more seriously than um, they did in the past. One of the things that surprises me when people talk about issues like equity and diversity is that it can be a bit reductive and focus 
on just race and ethnicity. The issue is much broader than that. How should drug developers think about this? I think that's another great question. When I think of diversity and equity, I of course, everyone talks about race and, um, and ethnicity. I think it goes to biological sex. It's also pregnancy status, it's the age, it's sexual orientation, it's the life experiences and the environment in which these patients, it's the unhealthy behavior and the different types of diversity. And I think increasingly we begin to see more and more um, um, types of diversity talked about. For most companies, this still comes down to race and ethnicity. That is the area where many people have made a lot of progress. And I, in my opinion, I think that's not a bad starting point. In fact, most sponsors that are dealing with this right now should have this at the minimum, in my opinion. I think they can build on that and look at other forms of diversity. Um, you can't boil an ocean. I do take that challenge. I accept that. I also realize that um, it's impossible, especially for the for the smaller startups or those that haven't been around for a while, to have all the um, infrastructure you need to build a very, very diverse um, um, clinical um, trial. I do realize that, but at the minimum, I would expect the race and the ethnicity piece to be on the agenda and for companies to begin to think about other elements like the socioeconomic status. I think once you've got going with the race and ethnicity, the orders become sometimes even easier, right? So I think companies should see, the, see this as um, a building block where we have one, but we don't stop there. And we look at the next form of it. Um, obviously this depends on the therapy area and the drug and, and all of that. But I think companies should see this as um, putting the, 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 the building blocks in place and looking at the next level of diversity and the next level of equity in their clinical trials. Given the need to be on time and, and on budget with targets, how should drug developers think about balancing regulatory pressures and, and the patient and community pressures of, of developing these drugs? Yeah, that's a, that's a nice question. And those are not the only interest they need to balance, right? I mean, a big pharmaceutical or a small pharmaceutical company have their investors on one side, they have their employees, and then what you just mentioned, uh, regulators, patients, and they're not independent, especially a regulator is very much influenced by the patients, uh, influenced by political forces, etc. cetera. And, and with that in mind, quite often it comes down to the economical balancing. If you get better outcomes, better results by, by making sure your trial is more diverse, then the payoff will come. And you have to make sure that your shareholders are on board, that you have a good story for the regulator and that you're, that you involve your patients, uh, from as early as possible, uh, not just after the fact, not just with the donation to the patient advocacy organization but really ensuring that when you develop your trial, you have the patient in mind, you know why you do it and what the outcomes should be. And, and with that, uh, I think all those forces in the end have the same goal and aligning those outcomes, those, those interests uh, in the right direction for the company is, is the tricky part for sure. 
uh, and it doesn't always work, but that's what you, you can't just prefer one over the other. It has to be integrated. Does patient diversity have an impact on outcomes? I think it does. Um, in, in most cases, anyway, a diverse trial population makes for a much better story for the regulator, uh, and it makes for a more robust outcome. And if you put your submission together, if you have a diverse patient population, you can answer more questions. You can request a bigger, a broader label. Uh, and during the trial with a diverse population, you're likely to pick up more issues uh, than, than you would if it's just a singular population and you would pick them up after the fact and have all kinds of situations to deal with after your approval. And it may be in some cases that's preferable, but at the same time, having a, a robust submission uh, and being able to prevent those questions from the regulator, I think is a well worthwhile the effort it takes. What barriers do drug developers face to increase the diversity of participants in their clinical trials? I think the five barriers these companies face, right? I think there's the awareness element. That's the first um, um, angle to this. If people are not aware of your trials, they're not aware of the value of the drug, they're not aware of the value of participating in it, then that remains a massive barrier to clinical trial diversity. I think the next element to look at is the barriers to access, right? So how do does a patient from the, all sorts of backgrounds access a clinical trial? How do, how do they, they, do they not just hear about it? How can they participate in it? How can they logistically, what does this mean in terms of travel? What does this mean in terms of their, the cost of their commitment um, um, to this trial? I think access is the second point. The third one is we need to build trust, right? Many companies don't often think about this. How do you build trust with a long, with the community? And as we all know, trust takes time. It takes a long effort to build trust with the community. I think um, the, the lack of um, um, commitment from, from a lot of these drug developers make um, some communities not to trust them. And so companies need to address that time and again. Uh, um, so I think that's a third challenge. The other element, the fourth one is the retention. There's, I think there's a limited focus on continuous removal of the challenges to patients participating in a clinical trial. And so it's not just about getting a patient into a trial, it's about keeping the patient in the trial and removing every sense of barrier um, they face so they can they can complete the trial and so on. I think that's the fourth challenge. The fifth challenge many of these companies face is also um, the lack of um, um, advocacy within a particular um, patient population group. Right, the lack of adequate enablement of the patient advocacy groups, the and, and this these things all link into each other. But I think if there's no advocacy where patients themselves are sharing their experiences with other patients, that that makes it a lot harder to participate to recruit in this clinical trial. So I think those are the five main challenges companies need to be thinking about to raise awareness, increase access, build a sense of trust help with retention and help to create a sense of advocacy within their clinical trial space. We 
seen the rise of AI in many aspects of the biopharmaceutical industry. To what extent is AI being used to address challenges around things like recruitment, site selection, and protocols, and, and ultimately accelerate clinical trials? I think AI, in my opinion, one of the beauties of AI is the ability to assimilate a lot of information and to be able to um, look at patterns, look at trends, which are not easily available to the human eye. As my colleague Ben van der Schaaf was just saying, you know, there's a lot of complexity when running a clinical trial. And that complexity means that you have to have access to a lot of data and make sense of a lot of data all the time, right? From what it takes to get the patient into a trial all the way through to where should my sites be located? Is my pro trial protocol designed to be as attractive as it should be? All of these bring together hard data, soft data, how some of these bring structured data mm -hmm. on structured data, they need to be triangulated and make sense of that. And what we human beings would have done in our Excel-based models in the past, I think has been great, but I think AI is now bringing um, another dimension where we're able to look at more and look at it faster and make faster decisions and get a lot of um, unique advantages. An example of that in my experience from um, supporting a clinical trial was to look at data like um, social media data, the voice of the patient data, um, social economic data, um, different uh, regional policies, um, as well as the traditional data in site selection, right? The site visibility data, um, the epidemiological data, and being able to triangulate and bring this together to find the winning clinical trial sites. I think it's been a beauty to see that implemented in my time. And I think we're going to see even more and more use of AI in this space. We've seen growing interest after the COVID pandemic in decentralized clinical trials. Are you seeing sponsors accelerating this by leveraging technology to make trials more accessible? Yes and no, of course. There's, there's, after the, the decentralized clinical trial is not new. Uh, it existed well before uh, the pandemic, but of course the pandemic all of a sudden made it a, a necessity and a requirement and, and something quite powerful. So it became almost the flavor of the day, but with some real value. At the same time, the decentralized clinical trial is not the answer to everything and not all trials, uh, every trial is suitable. For it, I mean, I spoke with with a, with a client recently who's like, well, in our trials we have surgery, that doesn't work so well at patients' homes, uh, and of course that's true. Uh, at the same time, there's lots of patient visits that are simple measurements, simple observations that could be done with a telehealth visit or even monitored through the wearables that that may be provided to patients. So. It definitely has a lot of value. It makes life for the patient easier. And everything that makes life for the patient easier makes it less burdensome on both patients and sites to, to facilitate uh, all the steps that need to be taken, make it easier to keep patients on trials and make it more attractive for patients to, to enroll on the trial. So uh, a lot of value in it. Uh, not the answer to everything, uh, but it's certainly uh, a good addition to the to the whole toolkit 
of, of sponsors uh, and other companies in how they conduct clinical trials. Are there other ways technology is being used to speed things up? To speed things up in clinical trials from our experience of supporting multiple, multiple clinical trial acceleration, I see that being coming down to three things. The first one is you have to be at the right place and at the right time, right? Secondly, you have to have a protocol which is very attractive to have people want to participate. Thirdly, you need to make decisions and make data-driven data decisions on an ongoing um, um, basis. You need to move fast, you need to move faster than others. Now, when you look at these three elements, technology is helping to enable us to find the right sweet spot. I talked about a few moments ago. Secondly, technology is enabling us to be able to um, review and assess other competing trials and to give suggestions on how things could be done faster. And um, and thirdly, the ability to make decisions um, as, as quickly as possible. Technology is enabling us to bring data from multiple sources together as quickly as possible. In my opinion, I think each time we look at any clinical trial protocol, any new drug or any new disease area, I find like these things are moving incredibly fast. There's new technology coming up every single time. And even in the most, um, um, in some therapy areas where you think this is really not prone to technological changes, I find like each time we do, we dig in, we find there is some, someone somewhere somehow has developed a technology that can enable us to achieve this. So how can, and how can we speed things up? I think that's the ongoing search of technology to enable us to address those three exam questions. There is the willingness as well to, from, a lot of this drug, there, there has to be the willingness from the drug developers to be able to adapt and incorporate the technology. And like I said, this is not an this is not a one-off experience. I've seen too many clinical trial sponsors that have done it once and they think we've nailed it, it's done and dusted, and you realize actually someone else comes in and moves in much faster. So it's an ongoing review, ongoing understanding of how technology can help to get the trial protocol more attractive to make sure we're in the right place at the right time, talking to the right people and making uh, very data-driven decisions. On one of the clinical trials we supported, um, we asked the clinical trial um, team at the end of the process, when the program achieved this enrollment um, uh, um, objectives ahead of time, we asked them what was the leading reason for the trial being accelerated. And the overwhelming response was having one source of truth and being able to make data-driven decisions as quickly as possible. That was what they saw as the unique um, accelerator in that clinical trial. Technology is changing, you keep changing, the opportunities would keep increasing in my opinion. Delays in clinical trials have real economic consequences, not only because they increase expenses, but delay the time to revenues. Are there some examples you can offer of how you worked with companies to solve some problems and how it translated into time savings? Uh, thank you for that question. And that's uh, for the executives under the audience. I'm sure that's what they are most concerned about. And want to add one thing. It's not just the cost or quicker to revenue. The quicker you get to failure also means that you get to save money, right? Uh, in terms of an example, it's one example I always find 
a fascinating one is when um, we started looking for patients who hadn't been diagnosed yet. So this was in a real, uh, in a rare disease trial where in general patients didn't get diagnosed until the fifth specialist they saw. Uh, and we worked with electronic health records and, and AI and, and identified some markers that could help us identify those patients, potential patients much earlier and get them referred to the correct specialist earlier than the fifth one. And, and this was a debilitating disease that by the time they got to the fifth specialist, it was often quite late into the process. And this helped to identify some patients getting on clinical trials. And when you're talking about rare patients, uh, any patient is, 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 makes a difference, right? Um, so that's, that's one. Uh, and then looking at other examples, there's a lot of things we, we can look at, questions we have to ask. Uh, for example, we need to look at the protocol. What, what makes things difficult for patients? Uh, why are they screen failing? Are there any, there might be something as a, as a complex ICF that makes it hard for patients to join or puts off sites uh, as in, okay, well, this is too much administrative hassle. We don't have the resources to deal with that. So there's lots of components, lots of areas in the whole setup of a clinical trial. Uh, and we look at all of them generally to, to help understand what makes a difference. And, I don't think in all the years that I've worked in this space, I've ever found the silver bullet that says, yes, that's, that's it. That solves all your problems. There's usually a host of issues, some connected, some unconnected that all contribute. Uh, and yes, some are bigger than others, but overall, uh, they're both operational. They are protocol related. Uh, and there may be some aspects that, that, nobody ever thought of uh, that still turns off either the site or the patient in their in their process and and competition is another factor there how do you compare uh, if you put your sites in places where all your comp competitors are also looking for the same patients you just have a challenge on your hands so looking where the patients are is uh, is important and I, and I'll end with another example where we're looking at a specific indication where a potential large population of patients was outside the countries that uh, were selected for the trial, uh, but distance-wise, they weren't all that far. And what we agreed with the sponsor is that actually transporting those patients to into the country where the sites were for treatment, for selection and observation was actually worthwhile doing and opened a new patient population that actually hadn't been accessible and then was. The Arthur D. Little process in accelerating clinical trials begins with finding the right site, finding new patients, and avoiding patient loss while performing assurance checks. Can you walk us through this process? You've, you've, you've nailed the key points of this. The first one is finding the right sites, right? We've talked about this on this podcast earlier on, and I think it's right at the heart of this. Are we at the right place 
And if we're at the right place, how do we extend the reach of the sites we have? So a key part of our process is to use all sorts of data available to us to find the right locations. And when we find the right locations, we think, how do we make those locations even you get have access to more patients? We could move patients, we can fly patients across the country, we can fly, fly patients outside of the countries, we can refer patients from other source resources, we can look at their satellite sites, everything to do with being at the right place at the right time and extending the reach of their sites is what our process starts off with. We then look at the second element, which is finding the patients, finding new patients, if I can call it that. And that basically focuses on increasing the pool of accessible patients, not just the patients the sites already have, but how do we use everything within our disposal to find a patient? An example of this in um, in one of our recent clinical trial acceleration effort was to, um, this was in the rare disease space, was to in us it was to increase we used ai to increase our access to more patients right so the normal process is you wait for a patient to get diagnosed and then you look to attract them towards your study what we did was to use um, um graph uh, pattern ai to look at patients before they were actually diagnosed and to say what are the what are the markers what can create clinical suspicion of a disease and help us to um, um, help the patient with their diagnosis but also coming on to the, onto the clinical trial that was one example um, of, of AI used to um, in, in my experience but the second element the second element is looking at how do we increase the pool of patients beyond those immediately in front of us the third element in, in the Atherdy Litus process on clinical trial acceleration is looking at avoiding patient loss. Having worked incredibly hard to put our sites in the right location, we know this costs a lot of money. It takes months to get the, the sites up and running. Having done everything to increase the pool of patients, how do we avoid losing those patients to or to, to competing alternatives what what is competing with the patient in, uh, from um, um from an approved drug or to the risk the patients might see it or to to the challenges the patients might see with participating in the in uh, in a clinical trial or even competing clinical trials right where can we lose the patient walking through that journey step by step and identifying where there's a risk of losing patients and making sure those risks are addressed. So those are three elements of the other little process. The fourth element is one that happens all throughout the journey, which is to use a data-driven approach to assure ourselves that we have done enough to um, get the clinical trial to, to deliver on or above um, the target set um, for the clinical trial. So we use a very granular, data-driven approach. We borrow data from historic trials, from um, con the current trials. We borrow um, data that's directly linked to the trial or indirectly linked to the trial. Basically, we look at anything that affects the, the patient journey through the clinical trial, and we look to model that and give ourselves enough assurance that we have done enough. Or, um, and if there's room to do, to do more, we also look to identify that. So. The process basically says find be in the right place, 
do everything to increase the pool of patients, avoid losing those patients, and give yourself the assurance that you've done enough. That's what the ADL process for accelerating clinical, clinical trials is focused on. Given this data-driven approach, what types of insights can you glean from that data? And I know there's a lot of hype around this, this type of an approach. Does this really work? Does this work? Yes, it does work. I've gone through this several times. Um, the, actually, the little team have been through this much more than I have as well. And I think it does work. We have evidence that a lot, in my, in my, in my opinion, most decisions that can be made in clinical trials can be data-driven. The, the challenge many companies face is that it's so complex and it's so difficult to make the causality assessments between an event and the outputs we observe, right? And so because of the complexities of these things, many companies are happy, are happy to make very limited data-driven decision. But the way the Arthur the little team looks at it is for any exam question, for any step throughout the process in accelerating a clinical trial, there is data, there is always data, and we can make data-driven decisions, you know? An example could be, the, the effect of having an investigator meeting on patient clinical trial recruitment, right? You know, we, we can always look back to see where a change has happened as a result of an investigator meeting. And then we can understand and learn from that to help us make um, future decisions on how many investigator meetings do we need throughout the life of a, of a, of a, of a clinical trial. There's data everywhere. There's, um, tons amount of data that's not being used. I think once um, um, clinical trial sponsors have done the hard work on understanding what the data really means, you find that making data-driven data decision is helpful and it does work. And that's right at the heart of what my team and I are focusing on to help companies to make the most of data that's available to them. We're in a time of growing interest in rare diseases while... 95% of these conditions are without an FDA-approved treatment. It's not unusual to see multiple companies seeking to develop treatments for the same disease. What's the implication for this with regard to enrolling a trial with a small patient population? And do sponsors need to think competitively in this regard? There's definitely uh, implications for this, uh, and sponsors do need to think competitively, but they also might want to think collaboratively, and I'll, I'll elaborate on that. Uh, first, I'd go to the parking lot example. Whenever you go to a, an event or a, a place with a big parking lot and all the cars are at the beginning, if you park your car in a lonely spot, when you come back, there's probably a bunch of cars situated around your car. It's human nature. Uh, people go where other people are, and I think it's it's similar here. Clearly, there is the academic world where a lot of this originates. Academics talk, they compete, they use different words, and, and even when Watson and Crick discovered the double helix, other groups were going after the same target. They were just a little later. So that's, that's in itself not all that surprising. Uh, recently, it is also, it, it's fairly new in the rare disease space and companies who used to be 
on their own in any rare disease indication have to deal with competition. That's new for them. Uh, it requires a different approach and a different attitude. Uh, and it, it means they have to, A, better know the patients, know where the patients are, but they also have to understand their uh, competitors. And when they go for those rare patients, it makes all the difference, A, how early you are, how good your clinical trial is, is it easy to get into, et cetera. What, what, what are the, the burdens, again, on site and investigator and on, on patient? And what I'd like to point at as, a, as an opportunity is when there are so few patients and there's multiple companies going after those patients, perhaps there is an opportunity for companies to collaborate. There are only so many patients. Uh, whichever treatment works, I don't know, but a combined clinical trial uh, might be an interesting option. Clearly, that will require a lot of flushing out of legalities, of licensing, and what it all means. Uh, but I think there are examples of it, uh, and I think it offers a lot of potential. And I think most rare disease patients would welcome that very much. And it probably creates more value and destroys less value if companies uh, collaborate in that space. So maybe I can I can build on this. One of the things um, the team over here focus on is looking at competing clinical trials and the effect of um, those competing clinical trial sites on a particular clinical trial, right? And the the consensus is that the more competition you have, the harder it is going to be for a clinical trial to a clinical trial site to perform and recruit the number of patients because you know you have a limited pool of patients split across multiple trials and so on it becomes much more difficult that is the general consensus but to build on ben's point on it driving collaboration we've actually seen cases where in the rare disease space sometimes ultra rare disease um, having competing clinical trial sites within a close vicinity of each other actually help to increase um, recruitment for everybody. And what happened? What we, what we what we realized was that patients that um, screened failed from one clinical trial were eligible for the next one, and the patient was not sent miles and miles away to a different um, location for another clinical trial. They went somewhere literally next door to uh, the compete to the to, to to the site. And so overall, you know. Um, we all have every clinical trial has its eligibility criteria and patients that don't fit into one actually could fit into the other. And that's just one good example of what we have seen that competition actually with collaboration can be a good thing in the rare disease clinical trial space. Ben Vandershaft, Arthur D. Little Life Sciences Practice Partner in New York and Ben Inejo, Arthur D. Little Life Sciences Practice Partner in Boston. Ben and Ben. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Danny. Thanks for listening. The Big Four Bio Podcast is brought to you by Big Four Bio, the leading aggregator service of the top life sciences regions around the world. To subscribe for free to Big Four Bio's daily newsletters, go to Big Four Bio. 
www.levinemedia.com. This podcast is produced by the Levine Media Group for Big Four Buy. Our theme music is provided for the podcast by the Jonah Levine Collective and appears on the album Attention Deficit on Alpha Pup Records. <laughs>